Here we are, picking up now in our uh, series, and we are um, looking at these verses today here that we read together. We're going to focus in on verses 9 through 11, ultimately, but let me just remind you once again that the the theme of our series through Philippians is the fellowship of the gospel. And one of the ideas behind the theme is that we who have received the gospel have entered into an extraordinary relationship with both God and one another. One of the ways that deep eternal bond we share between each other is expressed is in prayer. Eugene Peterson in his book, Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work, said this. He said, the single most significant phrase that a pastor can speak to a congregant is, I will pray for you. The pastor is promising to take up the matter at hand with God. You know, I read that in Peterson's book uh, last week. And, and it really stood out to me that how, indeed, how significant that is. I will pray for you. I will talk to God about this situation that we've been talking about together. And this is what we see with Paul and the Philippians. Paul prays for them. And he, um, he mentions the fact that he has been praying for them, and then he actually pens a, a prayer for them. That's the prayer that we're going to be looking at. And, and the reason that I want to focus in on this today is because um, this is something that we do for each other as well. It's not just the pastor praying for the congregant, but we pray for each other. We talk to God on behalf of one another. And that is a beautiful thing. That is an amazing thing. And so before we get to looking at the prayer, that will be our focus today. But I want to take a minute and I want to go back and I want to just talk about the Apostle Paul just for a moment. Because although of course, we read that the letter is from Paul and Timothy to the saints in Philippi. Um, I don't want to take, or I, I don't want to assume that everyone knows who Paul is. Um, because perhaps some don't. Perhaps uh, you're new to the faith. Perhaps you're new to really studying the Bible. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting because so often as Christians, as time goes on, we, we become familiar with things and we use terminology and we speak of people and we just assume everybody knows, but they don't necessarily know. And so, like I said, I don't want to assume that. So what we're going to do is we're going to just look for a second at Paul's background and, and we're going to let Paul tell us uh, a little bit about his background. So I'm going to read from a couple of sections of Acts. Uh, Paul, on a couple of different occasions in the book of Acts, uh, he tells his story. And so let me just read to you from Paul a bit of his own story. He said, I am indeed a Jew born in 
Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Now, he, he's speaking in Jerusalem. So the city he's referring to is Jerusalem. He was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, he's speaking to King Agrippa, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So this is Paul. This is the man who wrote this letter. And is there anyone in here this morning, I just am curious, is there anyone that didn't know that this is Paul's background? That just... Raise your hand if you didn't know that. It's okay. You're not, you don't have to be embarrassed about that. But, you know, people don't know. Like I said, uh, and, and, you know, so often we refer to Paul because Paul wrote um, so much of the New Testament. So, you know, we're, we're oftentimes talking about, well, Paul said this and Paul said that. And, and I'm sure that some unbelievers are like, okay, well, who's this Paul guy that they're talking about all the time? Well, um, this is who he is. He was formerly a blasphemer, as he said, and he was a persecutor, but Christ had mercy upon him and called him into the ministry. And so Paul refers to himself as he writes to the Philippians. He refers to himself, uh, interestingly, not as an apostle, even though, of course, that is what he is. And just for information's sake, uh, an apostle is one who is sent as the fully authorized representative of the sender. So that's what an apostle is. The word means uh, one who is sent. And so you can think in terms of uh, an ambassador. An ambassador is uh, an authorized representative or a messenger. So, so that's what what Paul was as an apostle, but but like I said, he never uses the he he never refers to himself in writing to the Philippians as an apostle, nor does he refer to himself in writing to the Thessalonians as an apostle. 
And the interesting thing about that is that Paul had a very personal relationship with both of these churches, where some of the other churches he was writing, um, in some cases, more officially. So he refers to himself as an apostle. Uh, in some cases, like when he writes to Timothy, even though Timothy is a dear friend, he's writing uh, sort of an official letter about um, how to conduct yourself in the church. So he refers to himself as, as an apostle there. And in some cases, he's writing to churches where his authority is being contested. So he refers to himself as an apostle, but not here with the Philippians. The Philippians were, they were, they were dear Friends, They were like close family members to him. So he never refers to himself here as an apostle, but he does refer to himself as a bondservant. And it's interesting that the, the apostles themselves would often refer to themselves as bondservants. A bondservant was one who served another willingly out of love. So that, that's the thing about a bondservant. A, bond, a bondservant wasn't forced into servitude. They served willingly. And they served willingly out of love. And a bondservant could also be described as one whose will was consumed with the will of another. And so Paul's will was taken up. It was swallowed up in the will of Christ. And so that's just a little bit of background. Uh, Timothy is referred to here. Uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about Timothy later because Paul talks uh, at the end of the section here. He talks extensively about Timothy. So we're going to talk about Timothy as well and give a little bit more detail on him. But, but let's move on to the prayer itself now. I want to take the prayer uh, that we see here in um, verses 9 through 11. And I want us to consider it. And what I want to do is I want to read it to us from a few different uh, translations. And, and I'm finding more and more as I go on in life and as I you know, progress as a, as a Bible teacher, I'm finding more and more how much I appreciate the numerous uh, translations that are available to us today. They all say the same thing. They just sometimes say it in slightly different ways that I think help us to get a richer and uh, really a clearer understanding of what Paul is saying. So I'm going to read it from three translations really quickly. I'm going to start with the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And so here it is. And this I pray that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And now in the NET, the New English uh, translation, it says this, and I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then 
one more, the NLT, the New Living Translation. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. So you see, they're all essentially saying the same thing, but they're just using slightly different words and sometimes phrases that are slightly different that, that I think help us to just understand more clearly what it is that Paul is praying for. So let's look at the request. Let's break the request down. And so the first thing he prays for, he's praying for their love to increase. Now, this was a loving church, and Paul testifies to that all the way through. Remember, this is a church where he has this deep, strong, lasting bond with them. They're, they're in fellowship together for the gospel. They're partners with him. But he still prays for them that their love would increase more and more. Because love is the thing. It's the key. It's the, the primary thing that God wants to see in the lives of his people. He wants us to love each other. And love is the thing that, that conquers. And love is the thing that overcomes. The love, love is the thing that breaks down the barriers. And this was the intention of Jesus from the very beginning. He said to the apostles, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for each other. That's how they're going to know. They're going to know because you love each other. Now, we, as you know, we live in a world that is growing more and more loveless by the day. We live in a, in a world where uh, hatred is proliferating. And we're, we're just seeing this, this animus and this vitriol and this anger and, and all of these things. And when you're seeing that, and when sometimes you're being subjected to that, the tendency is you want to reciprocate with that same kind of thing, thinking that that's how to deal with it. But, you know, the way to deal with it is love. Love has the power to change everything. And, and when people come with hostility even, when people come with hatred and anger and so forth, you know, when you, you disarm them by love, you, you turn their whole perspective on its head because they're, they're expecting that aggression. But then when you respond in love, they're like, wait, wait, that, that's not the way you're supposed to respond. Hold, hold on. I'm, I'm, I wasn't ready for that. And, you know, I've just heard so many testimonies about how it was, it was just the love of God's people that overcame and impacted the resistance. And so growing in love, increasing more and more and more in love. But notice this, he also prays that our love would abound 
in knowledge and all discernment. So Paul is not praying that they would have a, a sentimental type of a love. But he's praying that they would have a love that was genuine and a love that was based on truth. A love that was discerning. A love that understood what love really is. Now again, this is relevant today, right? Because uh, you know we hear slogans today in the culture, love is love, which means that you just you know let everybody define love according to however they're going to define it, and then you've got to embrace that definition. You've got to accept that. In some cases, you even have to agree and celebrate that that is love. That's not the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about a love that's informed, a love that's, that's rooted in, in the truth. And, you know, many Christians today are succumbing to cultural pressure and doing so by saying, well, you know, we're just supposed to love. And then that translates into, well, I, I'm just agreeing with, I'm supporting, I'm celebrating behavior, lifestyle, actions, ideas that God has already made crystal clear in his word that he does not support, celebrate, or uh, condone. But Christians, under the banner of, well, you know, love. And, and there are some Christians today who are now just dismissing truth and saying, well, you know, the most important thing is love. That, that's all that matters. God just told us to love. But see, that's not the biblical understanding of what love is. God is, the def- God is the one who defines love. God is love. He is love. His nature is love. So since that is true of only God, then God alone has the right to define what love is. See, I'm not love. I can't define love because I'm not love. And neither are you, nor is anybody else. So if we're going to have a definition of love, we've got to get it from the one source that is love, if there is such a source. And there is a source because the Bible tells us that God is love. And so that's how we know what love is. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son as as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. See, love, according to the Bible, is is something that gives, not takes. Something that's sacrificial, not uh, seeking to uh, please ourselves personally. So anyway, Paul wants us to grow in love, increase more and more. I want you to become more and more and more loving, but I want your love to be fixed to the truth. That's what he's saying when he talks about knowledge, understanding, discernment, insight. That's what he's referring to. But then he says that you would approve the things that are excellent. Approving the things that are excellent or as the CSB says, superior or um, what, what is the best or what matters the most. You know, there are 
there are things that as Christians, um, they don't really matter that much. And, and I want to put this in the context of between ourselves. Um, you know, sometimes Christians are bickering and arguing and dividing and doing anything but loving one another. And they're doing so based on um, taking minor things and elevating them to a major position. You know, most of the divisions that exist in the, in the Christian church are divisions over minor things, secondary things, things that don't matter in the big picture of salvation. Sometimes they're almost just preferences. And even when they're beyond preferences, because there are some doctrinal things that we disagree over, but they're not doctrinal things that, that put you either inside or outside the kingdom. They're just doctrinal things that you, you might be right or wrong about, but they don't affect you're standing with God. They don't affect your eternal salvation. They don't affect, they shouldn't affect your relationship with your fellow Christians, but they do so often. These are the, these are the things that we get all worked up over. And these are the things that cause us to divide from one another. But Paul says to them, I want you to approve what is, what is best. Know what really matters. You know, some... <laughs> You know, some people, for, for them, what really matters, if you look at the, the larger context of, of the scripture and God's kingdom, no, that, that doesn't matter that much. I heard recently about a person who preached a message to some pastors, and it was a message on, you know, hills to die on. In other words, these are the things you're going to fight to the death on. You're going to go down. You're going you're gonna to die on this hill. You know, you've, you've heard, I mean, sometimes we use that term, right? I mean, there's some petty little thing that somebody's worked up about it and you say, hey, you don't want to die on that hill. <laughs> it's not worth it. And so I heard this one preacher uh, was talking about hills to die on and, and you know, as I, as I heard the, the hills that he wanted to die on, I thought, gee, really? I don't want to die on any of those hills. <laughs> those are not the hills I'm going to die on. I'm going to die on the hills that matter. I want to die on Calvary like Jesus did. I want to die where it matters. You know, this is essential. So that's what Paul's talking about, that you would approve what is excellent, that you would know what, what really matters. And again, not be caught up in those, those petty kinds of things that we can so often be caught up with. And then he says, he goes on and he says that you would be sincere Pure and blameless is a couple of the translations read that way. And, and the word here is interesting because it's a word that means to be judged by the sun rays. To be judged by the sun rays. That was the idea. So, you know, here's, um, you know, uh, uh, some piece of art or maybe uh, some ceramic thing, uh, you know, something like that. And you want to you want to look at it under the rays of the sun to make sure that there are no flaws in it, and that's the that's the word that Paul uses here when he says when he says be sincere or when he says be pure and blameless. He's saying basically when the when the light is shined, make sure that that what what is seen is is um, real. 
It, the word could also be talking about a genuineness. The only problem today is sometimes when we talk about being genuine, we're talking about um, being really casual about our sinful behavior. And when people challenge us sometimes on sinful behavior, say, hey, man, I'm just being genuine. Well, that's not the kind of genuine that we're talking about. Um, genuine meaning like this is, this is real. This is it, what you see is what it really is. That's what genuine really means. And that's what, that's what God wants us to be. And then finally, filled with the fruits of righteousness by Jesus Christ. Filled with the fruits of righteousness. Just note this. The fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ. We are able to live the way God calls us to live because Jesus lives in us. That's the beautiful thing. That's the gospel. If I just said to you, or if somebody said to you, or if you said to one another, hey, you should live this way. You shouldn't be living like that. You could go out and say that to your coworker. Maybe, you know, your coworker's not a Christian, but you see the way they live. You shouldn't live like that. You should be living like this. Well, you're then, you know, you're imposing a standard on them, which I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I mean, they might not appreciate it, but, um, you know, so we do that so often. But sometimes we do that in the church too, but that's, that's wrong. And this is the reason it's wrong, is because when we do it like that, we're forgetting that the fruits of righteousness come because Jesus lives in us. Now, if I were to say to somebody, hey, you know, you shouldn't live like this. You should live like this because Christ is in you and Christ gives you power to live this way. That's the right way to understand it. That's the right way to communicate it. And so the idea is really let the life of Jesus flow out of you. Jesus is in you. Let the life of Jesus flow out of you. And when we think of the life of Jesus, what do we think of? Well, we think of the love of Jesus. We think of the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. These are, this is what's to flow out of us. But also the holiness of Jesus, the purity of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people today who would, they like the first part, let the love of Jesus, the compassion, they're big into all of that stuff. But then when you talk about purity, and you know, when we talk about purity, much of the time we're talking about sexual purity and holiness, that's where they say, oh, well, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that. Well, listen, Jesus is holy. Jesus is pure. So if there's going to be the fruits of righteousness that are the result of Christ in us, then of course it's going to be all the fruits of righteousness, not just a few here or there that we think are the most important. So it's through the relationship with Jesus and his indwelling presence in our life that these things then uh, come forth from our lives. So that's the prayer. That's what he prays for. Now, I want to really quickly, I want to look at the heart behind the prayer. The heart behind the prayer. The first thing I want you to notice is that um, 
Paul is, he has deep affection for these believers. This prayer for them is born out of a, a deep affection for them. In verse eight, he says, for God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. It was, it was, this prayer was born out of a deep love. And like I said in the beginning, one of the ways that we express our love for each other is praying for each other. When you pray for somebody, you are actively loving them. And that's what Paul was doing. It was, it, was, it was out of his deep love for them, his affection that he had for them. The second thing you see about the prayer is that the prayer was a thoughtful prayer. It's a thoughtful prayer. And sometimes it's difficult to pray thoughtfully. Have you ever noticed that? I, I sometimes struggle with that. You know, sometimes you just get a few little phrases, you pray those things, you pray them over and over again, then you... Sometimes I do myself. I think, can't I be more creative? Can't I be more thoughtful? You know, sometimes it's just desperate moments, so you're just crying out whatever comes. But you know, Paul, Paul is praying very thoughtfully. And when we pray for each other, we should pray thoughtfully. We should think about the person, think about the circumstances, and then pray accordingly. That, that's the way we should pray, thoughtfully, as Paul did. And then we see that the prayer was inspired. It's inspired. It's inspired out of that love. And, and you can sense as Paul is expressing himself in this prayer, he's inspired for them. The fourth thing is the prayer is relevatory. Relevatory. The prayer is a revelation. And this is the unique thing about the prayers in the Bible. The prayers in the Bible are revelatory. They're revelations of the will of God for us. And sometimes it's really hard to know how to pray for people. And sometimes it's hard to know even how to pray for ourselves. And sometimes it's hard to know if we're praying, am I even praying in the will of God for this person or maybe for myself? But listen, these prayers right here in Philippians 1, in uh, Ephesians 1 and 3, in um, Colossians chapter 1, these are these prayers that were prayed by the apostle for the church, but they were prayers that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's something that is beautiful to know. These prayers were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So here's the, the beauty of that. I know that when I'm praying these prayers for you or you're praying them for me or we're praying them for each other, I know we're praying God's will for one another. This is, this is what God wants. He wants us to grow in love. But he wants us to also be firm in the truth. He wants us to have discernment. And he wants us to be sincere. He wants us to be pure. He wants to see the fruit of righteousness from our 
relationship with Jesus overflowing in our lives. So that's the, the wonderful thing about these prayers. They're prayers that we can pray for each other, knowing that I'm praying God's will for you. So, like I said, and I want to leave it here, the expression of love one of the expressions of the deep love that we have because of our fellowship in the gospel is to pray for each other. To pray for each other. And there's, there's something that happens. Our, I think our love even grows for others as we pray for them. And this is part of what it is to really be in the fellowship of the gospel that, that we take it to heart, that we pray for each other. And in my experience, there's plenty to pray for. And it just seems like there's always something going on in somebody's life that they really need prayer. And again, going back to what Eugene Peterson said, um, the most significant thing you can say, not just as a pastor to congregants, but the most significant thing we can say to one another is, I'm praying for you. I'm talking to God about these things for you. And to know that, of course, God is listening. And that's the beauty. I, I have said this many times, but it's, re it's really true. When people tell me they're praying for me, I just am so filled with thanks. I need lots of prayer. And when people say, you know, I've, I've just been praying for you lately, I think, oh, praise the Lord. Thank you so much. I need it, and I appreciate it. So let's like, let's like Paul, let's, let's pray for one another with those affectionate, thoughtful, inspired prayers. The revelatory thing is, that's a different thing. But it's a real thing for these prayers that we're looking at here in the biblical text. Now, as we close today, I mentioned last week that beginning this Sunday, we're going to um, be giving an invitation to uh, people to receive or reconnect with uh, Jesus. And as we think about the fellowship of the gospel... And as, as I walked away last week and I was thinking about how this is going to roll out uh, every week, uh, my question was, um, how, how do we bring things around? I mean, obviously, we're talking about prayer this morning, and it's not specifically directed in an evangelistic kind of a way. And that will happen a lot of times as we're going through it. So how do we, how do we naturally come back around to it? And I thought, well, the theme is the perfect way to come back around to it. Because again, our theme is the fellowship of the gospel. And the fellowship of the gospel means that, that we are invited into and, and we partake in something. And that happens through receiving God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And remember, we mentioned this previously, but I'm going to say this 
probably week after week after week, the gospel is the declaration that your sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. We're all sinners. There's not a single person that's not a sinner. And most people are weighed down by the burden of their sins. There's guilt that comes along with sin because we're guilty. And if there is no guilt, then that just means that our hearts have become so hardened as to not feel that anymore. But the Holy Spirit's able to bring that fresh to our minds. But our sins can be forgiven. That that guilt that we rightfully bear because of our violations of God's laws and his will, that, that that's taken away. That is done away with. Our sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to God and born into a new life. Born into a new life. What an amazing thing. I was reading a book last night um, written by a pastor named Derwin uh, Gray who pastors a, a church in North Carolina. He's an African-American pastor. He's a former NFL player. Anyway, he's telling this story. He's, he's written this book on um, multi ethnic churches. He's just very passionate about seeing the church be, you know, multi-ethnic and it's a great book. But he but he tells us he tells the story about this um, this young white racist guy who uh, came to faith at his church. And he um, he said he had just preached and as he finished up, and as he was turning to talk to people, he saw the corner of his eye, he saw this young, you know, early 20s white guy sprinting toward him. And he didn't know what to think. He thought, is this guy coming to, you know, uh, accost me? You know, what, what, is, what is this guy, what's, what's going on? And all of a sudden, the guy comes up and, and grabs him and hugs him. And he said he had a really snotty nose and that was kind of a mess, you know. But here's the point. The guy said, I, I, I'm here and, and you're a black pastor and I don't even like black people, but I think I need Jesus. And Derwin said, yeah, you do need Jesus. And so anyway, he prayed with this young man. This young man received Christ. And he goes on to tell the story about he married him to his girlfriend who originally brought him to the church who was formerly a prostitute and, you know, all of this stuff. And it's just this wonderful, wonderful story. But the point is, why am I telling this story? Because, you see, when you, when you receive the gospel, you are reconciled to God and you're born again into a new life. And Derwin went on to say, because the book is talking about multi-ethnic things and, you know, combating racism, he's talking about how, how this young white racist guy is so transformed through the power of the gospel that he just becomes a tremendous blessing to the entire church. And that's what happens. And that's what we're talking about. That you're born into a new life, that you're dwelt indwelt by the Holy Spirit that you now have a place in the family of God. The, the girl that he married was, uh, she went into prostitution because she was not loved in her family. 
and she was abused and it just drove her out. She had no family. She ended up in prison, but she came to know the family of God by receiving the Lord Jesus. And you become a member of the body of Christ. You receive the gifts of the spirit and and God calls you into a place uh, where he actually has a plan and a purpose for you to serve him, the very thing you were created to do. And when it's all said and done and your life ends here on earth, which it certainly will, then you have a place in heaven, in God's eternal kingdom. You, you have uh, your, your place is secured there. And that's what it is to be in the fellowship of the gospel. And being in the fellowship of the gospel happens through putting your personal faith and trust in Jesus. Now, remember, this is Philippians. Remember the backstory? Remember how Paul was there in Philippi? And because of the, uh, they're delivering that demon-possessed girl uh, from that control of the, of the devil, uh, they were put in jail because the men who controlled the woman uh, were angry that they lost their income through how they were using her. So they threw uh, Paul and Silas in jail. And then remember what happened in jail as they were singing after they had, they had been beaten, as they were singing that night, uh, the doors of the jail cell opened miraculously, the chains fell off, and the guard was about to kill himself because if you lost your prisoner, you had to die. And the guard, uh, and Paul cried out to him, don't do yourself any harm, we're still here. And the man comes in and he falls down trembling and he asks these words, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responded, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. And so this morning, that's what we're talking about. Now, maybe everyone in this room is already saved, but maybe not. And you know, the reason that I wanted to begin to do these invitations on Sundays is because I know that there's a battle that takes place The devil doesn't want anybody to be freed from his grasp. And he does everything to try to hold us back from making a real commitment. And and to, to publicly respond to an invitation, it gives you a point in life where you can say, you know what, on that day, I did that. And 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 I I took a step toward the Lord, and God met me on that day. So that's what we're gonna do. So I'm going to pray right now. Father, I pray for those, any that might be among us today that have yet to really enter into the fellowship of the gospel. They've not really entered into the relationship that you purchased through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you're wanting them to come to you. And I pray that you would help them today. Anyone today, if there's a single person here today, either in this room or over in the fellowship hall, Lord, I pray that you would move on their hearts, help them to take the the step of faith to meet with you and to to experience that life-changing moment 
where you come in and become their Lord, where they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.